Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's Flint briefing call, where we'll be discussing one of the hottest political issues of the year, energy policy. I'm Josh Buckland. I'm a partner at Flint, where I lead our energy and sustainability work in London. And before joining the company, I was energy advisor in the UK government, working across Number 10 Downing Street, the Treasury, and the Energy Department. I'm very pleased to be joined today by three Flint experts, Mary Starks, who is former Executive Director of Consumer and Markets at the UK Energy Regulator, Ofgem, Gregor Kreutzuber, who's a former advisor to two EU commissioners, and François-Joseph Chachan, who's a former diplomat and political advisor to various French ambassadors. Now, turning to the content of today's call, unlike when I was in government, at least, where the focus was on trying to secure political attention on vital energy issues, governments have spent the last year desperately trying to get energy policy out of the news. The economic recovery from the pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine have put energy markets at the heart of the political discourse right across the world. In 2022, we saw a year of extreme volatility. Prices skyrocketed. Debates raged on how to combine a renewed focus on energy security with political ambition to address climate change. And governments were forced to bail out consumers while imposing windfall taxes on producers. Now, some are starting to argue that as we enter into 2023, the situation will be different, that as the immediate crisis subsides, normal service will resume. But will this really be the case? That's what we want to try and unpack on this call over the next 25 minutes or so. So to kick us off, the key issue of 2022 was sky-high energy prices, particularly in the UK and Europe. But into 2023, we have started to see gas prices fall back to levels not seen since before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So let's start with you, Mary. Now prices are falling. Is it true to say that the crisis is over? Thanks, Josh. Uh, prices have come off um, crisis peaks, and that's been helped by a mild winter, but they're still two or three times higher than historic levels in the UK. So this could become a new normal, but markets are still pretty jumpy, so I don't see prices settling yet. In the EU, although energy prices have reached record lows recently, uh, there could be further market stress ahead of the next filling and winter seasons. So I'd expect prices to be volatile for a while yet. There are new and increasing uncertainties, uh, geopolitical risk, obviously, driving rapidly shifting patterns of global supply and demand, as well as increased weather risk, which affects not only renewables, but also nuclear, as we saw with the droughts this summer. So the scale and unpredictability of these factors means we're unlikely to see a return to sort of predictable pricing and, and calm markets anytime soon. And of course, even though wholesale prices have come down, prices to households and especially businesses are still increasing dramatically in some cases as customers roll off fixed price contracts and as crisis support is withdrawn. So for some, the crisis is just beginning. Thanks, Mary. Clearly, the crisis is by no means over. But in your view, what are the key implications of prices going down over the course of this year? I assume it's not all upside. Well, in fiscal terms, it means um, support measures are less expensive, um, but it also means there's less coming in from windfall taxes. But the former is the bigger effect, so net positive for, for the Treasury. Uh, for customers, cost pressures will ease in time, but as I say, for some, it'll get worse before it gets better. For governments and the energy sector, lower prices should reduce the need for market interventions, including business and customer support, unless, of course, prices keep spiking. And for the climate, we may see less pressure to develop new sources of fossil fuels, but 
perhaps more fundamentally, also less urgency for investment in energy efficiency measures. The crisis experience has also reignited interest in decoupling renewable and fossil fuel prices with customers who are on 100% renewable tariffs asking why they were so exposed to gas prices over the last year, which is a pretty fair question. So even as prices fall, I'd expect that debate to continue. Thanks very much, Mary. Really insightful. Before I turn to the others, you briefly mentioned earlier the extraordinary measures that governments are having to take to insulate consumers from rising costs, um, and those cost billions of pounds, euros and dollars over the course of the last year. As the situation evolves, as you've described, how do you expect that support to change over the course of the, the coming year? That's a very good question. Um, Government support was implemented quickly and at scale. It was an impressive effort, but it was not targeted and it was therefore extremely expensive. So in the UK, the government has announced a gradual easing off of support to households and a pretty abrupt scaling back of support to businesses. So those in energy intensive industries will get more help. But beyond that, um, I think we're likely to see quite acute pressures in sectors where energy bills can easily wipe out profit margins. So pubs and restaurants, also care homes and, and sort of businesses like that. And we may see government coming under more pressure to do more to help, especially with the Labour Party sort of mobilising ahead of the next election. So from an economic point of view, the government has got to balance supporting good businesses to survive against managing a fiscal burden, which is not an easy thing to to do. Thanks, Mary. Um, That's really useful. Let's now turn to a a more European view and and bring in Gregor. Um, Gregor, what's the overall European view of the crisis? And, And what are the big strategic bets that the EU is looking to make coming out of the crisis into 2023? So I think from a sort of Brussels perspective, it is very clear that the recent energy crisis has put the electricity market reform at the very top of the European Union's agenda. Uh, the European Commission will table its reform proposals in March, as you know, uh, and the geopolitical context and war in Ukraine have led the European Union to rethink its energy security and energy model more broadly. So much is clear. It has to be said, however, that the shift to renewable energy started way before the Russian invasion of Ukraine with the European Union's Green Deal agenda and the Fit for 55 flagship initiative. So that's not new as such. But in a way, the recent crisis have precipitated this reform, which is by far, it has to be said, it's by far the European Union's biggest bet this year, just one year before the European elections in May 2024. Uh, If you look at this from sort of the vantage point of the European Commission, ironically, the European Commission has not been and still is not really keen on heavily intervening in energy markets. If you probably recall that sort of the uh, energy regulator Acer put out a report last year, it basically said it acknowledged that electricity markets in the European Union were actually functioning quite well under normal market conditions. But it's also clear that 22 was an extraordinary year with unprecedented stress for the markets. Um, it's important to know that the European Commission was then forced by political pressure from predominantly Paris, but also Madrid or Rome to do something, whatever that something may be, uh, because uh, the political pressure was building up in some capitals and in some European Union member states. So this reform will be a real test for the EU's policy and political machinery. And as you know, 
parallel almost, the European Union has churned out all sorts of temporary measures, the emphasis being on temporary in the course of last year, some more thought through than others. And that sort of comes on top of what the European Commission is now trying to table, which is sort of a more permanent reform of the system. Thanks, Gregor. Thanks. And, and, and just picking up on that, um, on those kind of essentially more seismic reforms that are due to now be developed and thought about over the course of this year, what are the key political and policy drivers behind them? And, and as you've sort of implied, given how controversial they are, can we actually expect swift adoption um, of the Commission proposals, or are we expecting this to drag on until well after the 2024 European elections? Yeah, right. I think I mean, it's definitely clear that realistically there's going to be a big and quite lengthy debate, and we come to back to that later. But the reform's main objectives are to address the shortcoming of the EU electricity market while at the same time protecting consumers, European industry from excessive price volatility, including supply security, and improving investment incentives for the clean energy transition. But before everything, it's all above uh, a political answer to last year's energy crisis. And this is also how it should be seen. Uh, previous non-papers, if you look at them and unofficially informal positioning from the commission have tipped uh, that the commission will probably be looking at remunerating inframarginal generators and renewables under contracts for differences to ensure that incentives for investments in the green energy transition are maintained. This is one of the big concerns the European Commission has also in the context of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act uh, and in the U United States at the moment. And basically, the Commission is going to use all the work they have done last year, and especially with regards to the volatility on the markets and energy trading to build a stronger EU market design with sufficient safeguards to avoid the EU finding itself in the same situation as last year in the near future. So uh, it is true that the Commission proposal in March will only be the beginning of what is expected to be a thorny and sort of difficult negotiation between uh, EU member states, the European Parliament and the Commission. The European Parliament has been left totally outside of all these emergency measures because from a legal perspective, they are not sort of, they don't have the power to really intervene and will be keen to assert its position on the reform. So also expect uh, a healthy dose of populism in, in that debate, sort of trying to defend supposed consumer interests, attacking industry, uh, uh, additional sort of windfall profits and so on. And in addition, it is true that member states have diverged views on what the reform should look like, which makes it unlikely that the reform will be agreed upon before the European elections in mid-24. Thanks, Gregor. Just, just on your final point, very quickly before I move on, you mentioned that there is some national divergence in views. Is there a major national dividing line that's particularly important um, as these reforms are developed? I think we've seen over the last weeks and months, also in the wake of sort of the measures taken um, uh, as a consequence of the Ukraine crisis and sanctions against Russia, that uh, member states have indeed quite, you know, divergent views about the future design of the Euros, uh, European Union's electricity markets. If you take just sort of the question of decoupling and market intervention as one example, some key member states take France or Germany, have very differing positions on key elements of the reform, for example. 
if you take the use of contracts for difference or renewables. So I think there sort of the German position is much more conservative, leaning more towards the European Commission and what they have been doing or trying not to do. Well, the French model is much more interventionist and sort of is calling for a wholesale reform of the system. Um, but more broadly, this brings us back to the traditional EU debate about countries, those countries wanting more intervention and more interventionism on the markets and those wanting less. And so there is no consensus. And this will make for an interesting discussion in the next month to come. Thanks, Gregor. Now, let's, let's briefly zoom out a little bit from the UK and, and, and EU market and look at more of an international lens. Um, Francois-Joseph, if you hang around politicians and policymakers long enough at the moment, there's only one thing you'll hear, and that's the US Inflation Reduction Act and its implications for the global race for energy investment. The EU has obviously responded by announcing its Net Zero Industry Act, and we do expect the UK to say more in, in March. Are these changes that we're seeing just a sensible response to try and get national economies moving post-COVID and deliver much-needed energy security? Or are we seeing something more fundamental, a shift towards what some are now calling energy climate protectionism? Thanks, Josh. So I think what's at stake here for Europe is really the survival of parts of its industrial base. So it's pretty fundamental. Um, European industry is squeezed between high energy prices on one hand and an unprecedented level of U.S. subsidies for green industries on the other hand. And by the way, China is also subsidizing its own green industry. So maintaining Europe's competitiveness in that area in a very adverse environment is a, the, the primary political driver behind the response. The problem here is that Europe is divided on how to respond. Um, and you have seen the Commission's proposal yesterday, which are very much a French-inspired interventionist set of measures, uh, such as the relaxation of state-aid rules. Um, and, and there has already some, been some, some backlash from member states, from other member states that are perhaps more uh, economically liberal or have less capacity to use the new flexibilities. But I think the key element here of this will be funding and access to funding. Um, one option that has been floated around is to use uh, the remaining funds from the COVID recovery funds and also the repower EU funds. I doubt this would be enough. And some countries like France are pushing for additional joint EU borrowing. But of course, that is going to be opposed by, by other member states. So at the moment, because of the funding issue, um, the EU measures, I think, are not going to fully achieve their objective. And by the way, they might be further watered down by the negotiating process ahead. Um, so what is on the table at the moment is unlikely to be sufficient for the EU to be able to compete with the US. Um, all of these debates are going to play out in the next few weeks. It's not the end of the process. And uh, we should look out for the European Council next week in particular, um, where we can expect difficult discussions amongst member states on this. And what we are seeing is that the debate essentially has moved from an EU-US problem to a, a, a really an intra-European and an intra-EU uh, debate um, in the coming weeks. Thanks, Raj-Joseph. Interesting. And just before I come back to you, actually, I wonder whether I could bring back in Mary. We've obviously got the, the budget in the UK coming back up in March. Um, can we expect the UK to respond to the UK, US and EU interventions in that critical um, Chancellor speech in the middle of March? I mean, I think it has to. Um, green technologies are desperately hoping for clarity on UK policy and financing frameworks. That's um, carbon capture and, and storage, hydrogen, 
nuclear and, and many more. And with subsidies on offer elsewhere, and with windfall taxes and political uncertainty at home, the Chancellor has a job to maintain the UK as a, a top tier destination for green investment. And of course, we've got quite tight uh, fiscal constraints. There's not very much money around and there's very little political space really across the political spectrum to raise taxes to pay for subsidies. So I would expect the focus to be on policy clarity and on creative ways to mobilise private capital. Thanks, Mary. Sounds like there's not many easy options uh, on the UK side. Uh, turning back to you then, Francis Joseph, um, what are the fundamental um economic and political challenges that national governments can have to face up to as they look at trying to drive international cooperation on energy and climate issues this year. We've got key, obviously, moments, G7, G20, COP28 later in the year. Is it really possible to think that those will be a success given some of the strategic challenges that national economies are facing this year? So what we are seeing in the international landscape is that geopolitics has, has really changed the energy landscape. Uh, we've talked about the war in Ukraine and sanctions. Uh, and in turn, the energy crisis itself is, is changing geopolitics as well. Um, and the EU is at the center of this. It has been scrambling all over the world to find alternative oil and gas supplies. Um, and this has changed the nature of the relationship that it has with some countries, for example, Qatar. And I think it's important to understand that these are structural changes uh, because there, there, there will be no coming back to the dependency on, on Russian oil and gas for, for Europe. Um, you mentioned climate negotiations, and I think they are also paying the price um, of this fractured geopolitical situation. Um, and I think there are two main factors at play here. The first one is um, energy security, which has very much become the priority in the short and medium terms and, and is inevitably affecting ambition on climate. Uh, but in the long term, I think governments have started to understand that energy security is not necessarily incompatible with climate commit commitment, and that in fact, it can actually contribute to these commitments if it, for example, involves a rapid um, uh, deployment of renewables. And, and to be fair on the EU on this, uh, the EU has maintained a very high level of commitment there. Um, if you take the, the, the Fit for 55 package, all of the legislation under the package almost have been, have been adopted last year. So that's, that's quite an achievement, although, although a lot remains to be done, of course. The second element which is important here is geopolitical uh, competition. Uh, we have seen that um, uh, it's a pattern, basically, in, in the last few years in climate negotiations. It's very, very difficult to have a, a global agreement without an agreement between the US and China first. Um, and, and what we are going to see this year is um, a test on whether the US and China can uh, uh, resume uh, positive coordination on, on this issue following the Biden C meeting at the G20 last year. Uh, and that was going to, uh, Blinken, for the Secretary of State, is going to China next week. Um, so, so, so there is perhaps a window of opportunity between the two countries in the next few months to, uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, make improvement on, in that regard. And this, all of this, of course, will also affect, as you say, um, uh, uh, discussions at the G20 uh, meeting. Um, I think in the long term, if you look at the, at the longer term perspective, the key point is that the issue of climate change is not going to go away. Uh, countries will have to come back to it at some point. And so I think the net zero agenda will continue to be a long term uh, priority. The question is from, from an international perspective, the question is whether the framework of the Paris Agreement in 2015 will be the key element or if it will be largely down to the national level 
uh, individual countries and coordinated uh, efforts. And I think COP28, COP28 at the end of the year is going to be a, a test for, for this. Thanks, Marjorie-Joseph. Um, we're, we're obviously now nearing the, the end of our call today, um, but I, I don't want to let the experts on the call go without a quick last uh, fire question. Given no one could have predicted the energy chaos that we saw in 2022, I, I want to ask each of you, what is the one thing on energy that actually might surprise people in 2023? Uh, maybe I'll start with you, Mary. Uh, I'm going to say business energy. Um, so UK businesses are failing at the fastest rate since the financial crisis and energy prices are a big factor in that and not, not the only pressure on businesses, of course, at the moment, but very significant cost for, for some, though, you know, particularly those with, with premises. Um, and our suppliers against that backdrop are understandably pretty nervous about their own credit exposure to business customers. So some businesses are finding it really hard uh, to secure supply. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of allegations about unfair behaviour by uh, by energy suppliers associated with that. So I think we're going to see government and the regulator facing pressure to act in in this part of the market that historically they've been able to leave pretty much alone. Thanks, Mary. And to you, Gregor. Well, from a Brussels perspective, my money is on critically raw materials. Uh, watch out for an ambitious commission proposal which will be unveiled in march uh, and this could really impact the way uh, europe deals with rare earth materials and strengthen european supply chains so don't forget 70 percent of the materials used for solar panels in europe come from china so that's an issue which europe may want to address one way or the other and finally to you francis so I would say nuclear energy. I think we've seen with the current energy crisis that there's been a shift in the way some countries approach nuclear energy, particularly since the Fukushima accident. Um, and it's now seen as a key element for energy security, complementing intermittent energy sources such as renewables. So if you look at France, the UK, some Eastern European countries, and elsewhere in the world, the debate has really shifted on that. And we can expect nuclear energy to, to pick up quite significantly, I think, in the next few years. Thanks all. And uh, to answer my own question, I think I I'm also very much looking forward to the point Gregor made earlier around long-term energy market reform. It feels like that is going to throw out some surprises both in the UK and Europe and potentially elsewhere over the course of this year. So it's one to watch. Uh, well, thanks to you all for, for contributing. I, I think to, to sum up, the, the energy crisis is, is far from done. I think we've settled today. The focus of 2023 is going to be more about addressing the medium-term implications of higher prices um, and dealing with a more uncertain global trading environment. I think we're likely to see reforms move on to not just the short term, but also think about more structural changes, how to ensure at a moment where the work fo focuses on energy security, there is also real focus on delivering low-cost green energy. Um, and as always, there's much left to do. And with that, we will end. Thank you all for joining. Um, please don't hesitate to get in touch with any of us on this call if you want to pick up the issues we've covered in more detail. Hope everyone has a good rest of the day and goodbye.